Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, it was in, uh, I think it was in 1990, that uh, <coughs> I went for the first time uh, in uh, South Korea with uh, our teacher, Samu Selim. He uh, brought us, there was five of us, and uh, it was our first time. And uh, <coughs> we discovered very quickly that uh, the trip was going to be really kind of a rather demanding physically. The schedule was very intense. We would wake up, you know, 4.30 in the morning, follow the practices and uh, travel from temple to monasteries. And uh, <coughs> It was quite demanding. I remember at times when uh, I was asked to describe what uh, those uh, uh, pilgrimage in South Korea would be, I would say, well, you know, Sunim is rather generous with his teachings, <laughs> which meant, you know, for a drama student understood right away what it meant. It meant really uh, stick to the still mind. Even in the midst of chaos and movement, constant movement, you know, remain still. And, and if you couldn't at least hit that direction at all times, otherwise <laughs> it would be trouble <laughs> for you. And, you know, it's quite, uh, anyway, extremely rewarding, of course. It was, most of the time when I went there, it was in the fall, like it is now, and actually Every time fall comes in, a part of me is transported in South Korea because of the beauty of the fall there through the mountains, the valleys, each temple, each monastery has a river going by. There's all of the sounds of the bamboo groves. And it's quite full of poetry. One day we uh, came to this uh, monastery in which monasteries have sometimes this uh, place in which they dedicate it to the practice. So Zen monk and nun have this space in which they dedicate solely to their practice, day and night, emerging fully into the spirit of that stillness of the mind and uh, the practice. It was a, must have been the end of the day. And we were like duckling walking behind him in line. And when we entered this space, because very rarely anybody else is really allowed to go to those places. At one point, we were walking, so very slowly, as like meditation, walking meditation, step by step, very quietly. And I recall that day, Sunim stopped, turned around, and asked us, can you feel it? And surely enough, I know that we all could 
It was as if the air and everything was coated with that kind of a quality, shiny quality of stillness. As if everything was impregnated by it. It was very special. When um, I called Sonaha last Friday to ask her if I was still scheduled to come and give a little chat with you, she said yes. And she also mentioned that uh, they would be in the middle of the retreat. There would be a retreat this weekend. And um, Shortly after this phone call, I got involved in my office uh, with... Uh, <laughs> I just came back from France like uh, last week, where I was there for a month, uh, visiting my family and friends. And whenever I go there, I go to Paris, and uh, I always look for material for my harp studio. There are things which somehow are uh, more available there than it is here. Uh, especially, uh, I'm really interested in finding a good quality gold to put in certain things. And um, it seems that uh, France uh, <coughs> is very good at uh, basically framing their history with gold. And so mm -hmm. therefore, I knew that would be the right place. <coughs> so I, after intensive search, I actually found really those um, ebenist store, you know, uh, those are the ones that uh, Deal who make that all the fancy woodworkings, you know, violins and uh, uh, brass, and, you know, and all that. And they had like really a kind of a, a variety of things uh, for, uh, for me. But I also I remember on the counter, the guys had this little bottle of a liquid in which uh, it promises to, to remove everything, the dirt from all the metals, you know. And I thought, oh, this would be a good thing for me to have. And on Friday, after I called you, I realized I had this little kind of a, it's a little sculpture that I bought way back, uh, probably the same years when I came back from Korea, that I bought in, in Bangkok. And uh, it was very black, dark. It's, uh, it's not a Buddha sculpture. I think it's more like a monk. And it has a robe. And his, his mundra is meditation mundra. And uh, <clears throat> he was covered with black. And I couldn't see it was not a Buddha because it had a bolded head, so it was a monk, you know? A little shabby, but far less than I am. And then uh, he, uh, he basically, so I decided, I said, I'm going to try it on, you know? So I had to say, okay. And I put some of that liquid and set myself up. And I could. It's really, really hard, you know, and I couldn't really get really uh, the dirt off. And I say, okay, well, you know, let's try again, and I dry it, and then I have to put more. And as as I was more involved with it, then suddenly it's starting to come out. And at one particular point, he was just like there. He was still covered with dirt, but he had this expression of deep, deep practice. <laughs> he, you could see, say, whoa, 
You know, I was so impressed. Such a tiny little thing, you know, being able to, and I put it back on the shell, you know, in front of me. And the light hits him in such a way, it was so deep. You know? And I then suddenly, oh, it's Friday night. They are entering the retreat. And right away, you know, oh, I started in my office. Sit and him and I, you know, we were sitting with you. We transported ourselves into uh, this place that you, you have beautifully set up. And, um, and I sat there for a while. And after a while, I kind of smiled and I said, isn't that amazing how such a tiny little thing can trigger such a inspiration and uh, be very infectious. And so I felt very uh, grateful, and I stopped right away, cleaning him up, and said, he's perfect, you know, he shines. <clears throat> I was saying, I was like, I went, uh, I went to France and uh, visit uh, my family and my sisters. And uh, my family, my, friend, my parents lives uh, in a city called Aix-en-Provence. This is where I grew up. It's in the southern part of France. I was there during my adolescence. At the age of uh, 15, we moved to Paris. Very different landscape and different <coughs> lifestyle. Uh, but while we were in Aix-en-Provence, it was kind of a, a bit of a paradox this life of mine then. I had really difficulty with uh, my father. Uh, you know, it was tough in some ways. Many of us had this experience, but I remember it very clearly. But we were living at the very edge of the town. It's in Provence. And in those days, there was no really suburb you know, on the edge of the town. It was just basically, it was the end of the town. And then there was a the countryside, you see what I mean? <laughs> and uh, my view was beautiful hills of Provence. We kind of remind me the mountains of uh, South Korea. One thing about South Korea is that the mountains, uh, I, I can only define them as friendly. They all are very inviting. You just want to climb them, you know. And uh, it's, it's, quite, uh, it's, quite, uh, it's quite special. But anyway, so I went, this is what I had, those beautiful hills of Provence. And uh, <clears throat> in the midst of my difficulties with my dad, the thing I would take refuge to was the countryside. And... Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you know the city, Aix-en-Provence, but there's one thing I'm sure you know of it. And it's basically a mountain that basically is right nearby, where you can see from all over the town. A little bit like the CN Tower, you know. And uh, this mountain is called the Sainte-Victoire. It's simply magnificent. <laughs> The reason is because she stands alone in the landscape. 
And it's as if the earth once just lift itself up. So there's this cliff which is showing north, which is quite green, and this one which is showing south and facing the sun. And uh, uh, <coughs> when I was a, uh, at that time, there was a, uh, uh, I knew a priest which had a little house almost at a foot, you know. It was quite beautiful. I would walk uh, out through the fields of watermelons and then reaching, you know, uh, the little meadows and pine trees, forest, and then I would arrive to his place. And he was, a, he was actually quite a, a lovely man. We became quite a good friend. And uh, <coughs> he, uh, the thing, he lived with his girlfriend. <laughs> so <laughs> it was very unorthodox. <laughs> <laughs> but everything about him was really uh, reassuring. He would come sometimes to my class in, uh, in school, and uh, maybe what we call here the Bible study, but it was not a Bible study. Him would come into our room and he would uh, sat on the edge of the desk instead of behind, like an authority. He would sit on top of it and would light up a Gauloise, you know. <laughs> and uh, he had those really, uh, really uh, clear blue eyes and white hair. He was like a very big guy too, you know. And uh, we loved him very much because uh, his teachings were basically telling intimate stories about people, you know, the things they've been through. They're, you know, stories that really would inspire us. We would always leave him, you know, wanting to become the story that he had just told, you know. Anyhow, so I would go uh, to his uh, uh, little house. It was a little Provençal, very modest little house. And he would always lead me to the path to go to a certain angle, you know, of the mountain. And I grew uh, now, uh, every time when I go to France, I go visit that mountain because she is my friend. I cannot call her better than that. She's just a very, very close friend of mine. I found a spot which I can be on front of this mountain. <laughs> and here she is, this flat, humongous, majestic surface. On sunny day, she radiates, of course. And then, because we're in Provence, the sun changes. She turns pink, blue, grey, purplish, multiple colors. The reason why I say that you may know that mountain is because the painter, Cézanne, painted it repeatedly. And Cézanne was, in a way, credited to uh, begin the uh, Cubist movement, I think, while washing this mountain, since it's always changing, <laughs> constantly changing. The light make a change, but also the clouds passing by. The clouds often 
seems to scribe tales while passing by, stories, as if Montaigne is really uh, talking. It reminds me a lot about the relationship that uh, Siddhartha in the uh, book of Herman S. Um, that book where this relationship with the river, the movement of the river, the cycle of the river, you know, stillness and yet, you know, movement, this deep presence. Very reassuring, ever changing and yet remain still despite anything that goes around. So I was able to, very much like the cloud, just to pass by this mountain as well. And it was just very, uh, a very great refuge. When I was uh, in France this time also, I got to meet my uh, older sister, which uh, was also for me another refuge. She was always a very inspiring person, very unpredictable, full of energy, full of joys. Unfortunately, at one point of her life, she got sick and she had to have a surgery in which the surgeon uh, somehow did a mistake and so her life changed drastically and became, life became very, quite difficult for her. But yet, despite that, remained the most joyful, infantile mind, you know, always with a wow factor, you know. Whoa! Just like really moving. She always brought me to tears, you know. And uh, <clears throat> so she, uh, when I was there, and we only see each other, I would say, probably five to six hours every two or three years. But it's so good, so intense. So we, that's all really we need, you know, why more? <laughs> and uh, we don't really, it's quite fascinating. And uh, while I was there, uh, she said, her son was there as well, and she said, I need to read you something, you know. And I brought you that something. And I thought right away I would want to share this with you. It's written, it's a letter. It's a letter writ uh, written by Rose Luxembourg, which I'm sure some of you know. Uh, she was born in Poland. She was a philosopher and an activist. And um, during the, uh, the years before the First World War, uh, she was really a strong activist against, you know, the, uh, uh, <coughs> the struggle between the French and Germans. And she did everything she could in order to really try to uh, avoid this war. And so she constantly got arrested and passed tremendous amounts of time in jail. And uh, <clears throat> she wrote this letter from jail. 
This is my third Christmas under lock and key. But you needn't take it to heart. I am as tranquil and cheerful as ever. Last night, I lay awake for a long time. I have to go to bed at 10, but can never get to sleep before 1 in the morning. So I lie in the dark, pondering many things. Last night, my thought runs this way. How strange it is that I am always in a sort of a joyful intoxication. Thought without sufficient cause. Here I am lying in a dark cell upon a mattress hard as stone. The building has its usual churchyard, churchyard quiet, so that one might as well be already entombed. Through the window, there falls across the bed a glint of light from the lamp which burns all night in front of the prison. At interval, I can hear faintly in the distance the noise of a passing train or close at hand the dry cough of a prison guard as in his heavy boots. He <coughs> takes a few slow strides to stretch his limbs. The grades of gravel beneath his feet as so upless a sound that all the weariness and futility of existence seems to be rigid thereby into the damp and gloomy night. I lie here alone and in silence, enveloped in the manifold black wrapping of darkness, tedium and freedom and winter. And yet, my heart beat with an unmeasurable and incomprehensible inner joy. Just as if I were moving in the brilliant sunshine across a flowery mead. And in the darkness I smile at life as if I were the possessor of charm which would enable me to transform all this evil and tragical into serenity and happiness. True happiness. But when I search my mind for the cause of this joy, I find there is no cause. I can only laugh at myself. I believe that the key of this riddle is simply life itself. This deep darkness of night is soft and beautiful as velvet. If only one look at it the right way. The grades of the damp gravel beneath the slow and heavy thread of the prison guard is likewise a lovely little song of life for one who, can, who has here to hear. At such a moment I think of you and would <coughs> that I could hand over this magic key to you also. Then, at all time and at all place, you would be able to see the beauty and the joy of life, then you also could leave the sweet intoxication and make your way across a flowery maze. Do not think that I am offering you imaginary joy or I am preaching asceticism. I want you to taste all the real pleasures of the sense. My one desire is to give you, in addition, my inexhaustible sense of inward bliss. Could I do so? I should be at ease about you, knowing that in your passage through life, 
you will glide in a stub big tangle clock which would protect you from everything pity, trivial or arising. I cannot say it as well as my sister would. <laughs> I'm sorry. But it went really deep. And uh, when I left, I was sharing this with Sanha earlier, when I left my parents, I could see in their eyes a sparkle, a sparkle of uh, deep love. And I was so moved. It was, uh, I was uh, so glad that I had the eyes to see this. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> that's it. <laughs>